My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. If you guys enjoy this show and want to help make it better, then you can do so in one of two ways. You can write a brief review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. Today, the topic of our conversation is technological unemployment, and my guest is Martin Ford. Martin is the founder of a Silicon Valley-based software development firm and the author of two very interesting books that I recommend highly. The first one is called um, The Lights in the Tunnel, Automation, Accelerating Technology, and the Economy of the Future. And the one that we are going to be mostly discussing today, I just finished reading a few days ago, and it's called Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. So hi, Martin. Thanks very much for coming on my show. Thanks a lot for having me. Fantastic. You know, I don't know if you've seen any of my past episodes, but to be honest, technological unemployment is an issue that I am very concerned personally, and I have said so on multiple of my past interviews, and I have asked uh, asked it as, a, as an issue from many of my interviewees. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very happy that finally I have an episode entirely devoted to this, to this issue. So uh, before we jump into the meat of the matter here, let me just ask you to please introduce yourself in a couple of words for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with you, perhaps. Okay, well, I'm just a, a very small-scale entrepreneur from Silicon Valley. I started a small business uh, back in the 1990s, uh, developing software, and eventually partly as a result of what I saw happening with that business and how I didn't really need to hire many people going forward, I became very interested in this issue of technological unemployment and how how it would impact the workforce, and that's what motivated me to write these two books. But there's got to be something more than that, though, isn't there? Because it would appear that if you are a small business owner who doesn't need to hire a lot of people, you should be very happy about that, because it would cut on the costs that you need to incur while setting up a business and or while operating a business and then you might as well just focus on the profit making feature which is what business should be focused on and then just focus on that why step out of that realm and go into the book writing and authorship and especially in such a big and in some circles contested issue such as the technological unemployment well, the the biggest part of the reason is that I viewed what was happening in my little business as kind of a preview was what was going to happen with the whole economy. And uh, it's fine as long as you're talking about one business or even one industry that's being automated, then everything is fine. That's all good. But if it happens across the board, then that's really quite different. Then you've got a systemic issue. And, and really the problem that you run into is that you begin to automate the jobs that provide income to consumers, the people who buy the products and services in the economy. So looking forward and and sort of expecting that this is going to become more and more extreme, I think there's every reason to believe that we're going to run into a problem there where we simply aren't able to drive the economy. And that's really been a pretty major focus of both of my books, especially the first one. Very, very interesting. So, okay, so let's start our conversation today, perhaps best by defining what do we mean when we say technological unemployment. What is it? Basically, uh, the way I define it, it's when technology essentially displaces workers by substituting for them. And this is something that has happened to some extent throughout history. But previously, 
you know, workers and the economy have have always been to been able to adjust. And I think the fact that they've been able to adjust in the past has a lot to do with the fact that previously has primarily been mechanical technologies that substituted for muscle power, basically. Um, so people were able to adapt to it by using their brains in effect. What we see now, though, is that machines are coming for intellectual work as well. They're beginning to solve problems and make decisions and so forth. And so they're they're displacing cognitive abilities as well as muscle power. Very interesting. So so you kind of pre preempted uh, a little bit one of my questions, but I will come later to, to it so we can hopefully go into this issue further. Uh, so for the time being, uh, let me just give a quote from a previous guest on my show here, uh, who is a friend of mine. His name is Federico Pistono, and he wrote this book called Robots Will Steal Your Jobs, But That's Okay. So let's assume before we even jump into uh, whether robots will steal your jobs or not, why do you think that shouldn't be okay? Well, you, you know, there are two answers to that. It could be okay if we adapt to it in a way that it makes everyone better off. If we do that, it, it could be not just okay, but great. It could be a kind of utopia. Um, but there's no evidence that we're making that adaptation right now. Um, so this is a dual-edged sword. Technology is going to create lots of new products and services and capabilities and things that will make us all better off, yes, but it's also going to have a dramatic impact on the distribution of income. And right now, income is the way our economy works. It's how we distribute purchasing power. So we need to address that problem. We can't just sweep that under the rug. Um, if we do address it, then you know, it's all good, I think. If we fail to address it, though, I think that we're looking at a fairly dystopian future um, and, and probably lots of problems, lots of social upheaval and potentially a, a major economic impact as well. All right. OK, so let me let me start this uh, again in, in chronological order and, and see if we can sort of roll forward your whole argument, because to be quite honest, you put a very powerful, very comprehensive uh, very uh, uh, kind of well-referenced and extensively backed up by research, both economic and otherwise, in your book. Uh, once again, it's called Rise of the Robots. Um, so tell us about that rise of the robots. Why is it different? I mean, economists would say, look, Martin, this has been going on since the Industrial Revolution, since the first time the spinning jenny was introduced and Ned Ludd, started breaking, you know, the first machines that were introduced in England. We've always feared the rise of technology and so far it, we have not been justified. We just fear the unknown and the past has shown that we actually create at least as many, if not more, and higher quality jobs than the ones that we destroy. That's right. There's no doubt this issue has been raised again and again. It, I think that this whole thing is a little bit like the story of the little boy who cried wolf. The, there's, the false alarm gets raised. People become very skeptical, understandably so. But, you know, in the end of that story, the wolf does, in fact, show up. And I think that could happen here. So the, just because it hasn't happened before is not evidence that it can never happen. We see that throughout technology. Look at look at uh, airplanes. You know, when the White Wright brothers built their first airplane, there was one failure spectacularly after another. Many, many people believed that it would never happen. And then within the space of a few seconds, it did happen. But to answer your question, what's really different this time? I think that 
It has to do with the fact that the, the technology is accelerating so rapidly. It has to do with the fact that we now have um, technologies like machine learning, where we've got machines, algorithms taking on essentially cognitive ability. They're solving problems, making decisions, and most importantly, learning. Um, and then finally, there's the fact that it's so broad-based. I mean, information technology is everywhere. It's almost like a utility that invades the whole economy. That's quite different from what we saw, for example, with agriculture. And agriculture is, tends to be the classic example that skeptics will present. You know, look what happened with agriculture. Millions of jobs were lost, and yet, obviously, we're better off. You know, food is cheaper. People moved on to other things. But what happened with agriculture is that th that was a specialized mechanical technology, it displaced muscle power, and people moved to other areas, but of course there was the whole rest of the economy there to absorb them at that time. You know, when agriculture mechanized, there was a rising manufacturing sector, which was also at that time very labor intensive and absorbed all these workers. And then later on, manufacturing automated and offshored, and then people moved into the service sector. So there were these other rising sectors of the economy to absorb all those workers. Today, that's really not the case. I mean, this technology is now everywhere. It's across the board. And then the other thing to focus on is, is really about the nature of the work. It's not, this isn't, I don't think, about which sector of the economy or which industry or even what the job description is. It's more about the nature of the work. Is the work on some level fundamentally routine, repetitive, and predictable? If it is, then it's going to be susceptible to technologies like machine learning. And what we saw with agriculture is that people move from routine repetitive jobs in the field to routine repetitive jobs in factories. And then later on, maybe now they're working at Walmart doing relatively routine repetitive things. But all along, they've done basically routine stuff in different industries. Now we're, we're at a point where you know, the machines are coming for anything that's routine and predictable and can be addressed through technology like machine learning. So the question is, can you take our whole workforce and now cram them into these few jobs that are genuinely non-routine or creative and so forth? And that's what people talk about. But if indeed we could make that transition, it would be very different from the transitions of the, of the past. It's not the same thing at all. And I'm personally pretty doubtful that, that we can pull that off. Uh, you gave us a few uh, examples, but perhaps you can also give us a few quantifying uh, or statistical examples uh, in, uh, in terms of the trends. Well, I, in my book, I've got a number of graphs in there. One of the ones that I think is, is most dramatic shows the relationship between average wages and productivity. Now that the, the economic sort of dogma has always been that as productivity rises in an economy, everyone should be better off and wages should track that. And in fact, if you look at, at the graph, uh, that's in fact what happened after World War II right up until the mid-1970s. The, there's a line for productivity and a line for average wages, and they, they're perfectly in lockstep. So that's exactly how it's supposed to work. But around the mid-1970s, the two basically decouple and wages flatten up flatten out and uh, you know workers haven't seen any increase in, in income at all really, average workers I'm, I'm speaking of now, whereas productivity has continued its climb. So you've got this, this big gap opening up between productivity and wages. And essentially what that's saying is that the fruits of productivity, the fruits of innovation in other words, are really accruing to business owners and investors and not to workers, to the people that own businesses or own the machines, they're the ones getting all the benefits for, from progress and average workers are no longer getting any of it. 
Um, so that's one thing. In addition to that, you've seen, for example, the share of national income going to labor as opposed to capital has been falling. Um, I've got graphs showing how job creation looks like over decades. And in fact, starting back in the 1960s, as you go forward, each subsequent decade has produced fewer jobs in percentage terms than, than the decade before. So it seems like the economy is getting worse and worse at actually creating new jobs. And this last decade, mostly because of the financial crisis, was just a disaster. We didn't create any new jobs at all in the first decade of, of this uh, century. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, jobless recoveries are getting longer and longer. So when the economy does hit a recession, it takes longer and longer for it to bounce back. It's like it's, it's kind of losing its ability to spring back after a recession and, and it's getting longer and longer. Again, this last one was just a monster. It was about six years before we got back to the, to the previous uh, employment level. So I think there are lots of things that you can point to in the economy that show something is going on and people will debate. They will point to other things. They will point to globalization. They will point to political change, the fact that we got rid of all the unions and so forth. And I think that those things are also important, but it's when you take all these trends together and consider them holistically that it's really hard to come up with an explanation other than technology that can sort of explain all of these things and what's going on. Yeah, and to, to give you an, an example that's very close to my wife's family, for example, my wife is Italian and her grandparents came from Italy. Uh, they had three kids. Um, uh, her grandmother was a housewife and her grandfather was basically a worker in a shoe factory in Toronto. And they managed to not just rent, they managed to buy a, a, a very nice uh, house on a single uh, minimum wage salary. Like starting from the 1950s to the 1980s, they probably paid it off, right? Today in Toronto, the cost, uh, uh, a minimum wage worker is unable to rent a single bedroom apartment. Uh, and the cost of a, of a family house, uh, the average cost is like $1.1 million. <laughs> so, so even people who make, let's say, families that make $100,000 or $150,000 a year struggle to actually buy a home. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of very, very hard. That's right, especially in urban areas where you've seen these this extraordinary increase in housing prices. I mean, it's really been a story of stagnant wages coupled with the big ticket items that really impact your budget, like housing, healthcare in the United States, not so much in Canada, but uh, you know, education, college education, uh, just been been crazy. But uh, so th that's sort of the squeeze that we're putting on people, and one of the implications of that is that people are going to have less and less to spend on other things. And, and that means they're going to have less and less to, in, in effect, go out and drive the economy. So what about the old argument that people have made, you know, that education and hard work will eventually let you prevail and not only pay off your school loans, but actually survive and even prosper in our society? Is that not true anymore? I become, I, you know, it's definitely becoming a lot less true. The, the problem with that is that there will always be some people who will succeed, perhaps spectacularly. And those people then provide the anecdotes that you hear about. And, and people, for that reason, I think, sort of continue to buy into that. But if you look at it statistically, in terms of the measures of things like economic mobility, I mean, it's the United States in particular is just not doing well, even relative to 
other industrialized countries. We're, we're much worse than they are. Uh, even countries that have traditionally had, you know, aristocracies and, and, and had feudalism in the past are now doing better than we are in terms of um, mobility. And, and in, in reality, it's getting worse throughout the industrialized world. So it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Um, and I think that part of what's happening is that education, the traditional solution, is becoming less effective. And the reason, part of the reason, is that the machines have just become so much more sophisticated that they're now coming after skilled jobs as well. They're coming after the kinds of jobs that college graduates take. And, and so you've seen this kind of continuum where technology began by focusing entirely on low-skilled jobs in factories and so forth. And, and a lot of those workers were impacted dramatically, but now it's really kind of moving up the skills ladder. And I think that that is going to continue and we'll see you know, more and more capability there. What about those people who say that uh, your argument and your view is very kind of, if not American-centric, it's very developed world, Western world-centric? Because they would say, overall, let's say in places like China and India, upward mobility has skyrocketed. The Chinese have lifted $300 million out of poverty and they're creating the jobs uh, and the income is rising together with the productivity. So yes, perhaps we are losing that kind of uh, income, especially mid and high end here in the developed world, but that's no longer not necessarily the case in, US, in uh, China and India. And when you look at it overall, we're still making progress rather than not. So far, we are seeing that that essentially that's what we call convergence, the fact that that those countries are are rising in income. And that's to some extent, a, you know, something that, that is a normal statistical process. But there are a couple warnings here. Number one is that the developed world, especially the United States, is still critically important to providing demand for the global economy. So those developing countries still are pretty reliant on our markets. So if we start essentially losing those markets because people in developed countries, and I think you already see a lot of this happening in Europe right now, um, simply don't have the purchasing power to buy products. That's going to also impact uh, developing world countries. The second thing is that this robotic revolution is also coming to those developing countries, and, and in particular to China. China is on the forefront of it, um, and, and we're seeing a big, big impact already. Uh, supposedly, Foxconn has got a fully automated factory in China operating right now, cranking out products with, with the lights off. So we're already seeing a pretty dramatic impact there in terms of um, employment in China. And that's going to be a critical issue for them because they are much more reliant on manufacturing than, of course, we are in the developed world. And also China really needs to go through a transition. It needs to rebalance its, co its economy in terms of uh, a, a greater focus on domestic consumption rather than, you know, just just exporting and investment. And, you know, this whole phenomenon is going to make that even harder for them, I think. So, it you know, the robots are going to have an impact in China as well. And even in countries that are poorer than that, you know, the, the, I think that there's also a warning there because the traditional path that countries have, have taken to become wealthy has been through manufacturing. The way is you build factories and you create lots of low wage, unskilled factory jobs and you employ people. And that's how you get started on the path to prosperity. But what happens if in the future, we're no longer going to need millions and millions of these unskilled workers 
working in factories. You know, we're, we're moving toward a, a new paradigm. If that's the case, how are the poorest countries in Asia and Africa and so forth going to get on the path to development uh, without access to those factory jobs? Yeah, and and I mean, we are noticing in the last couple of years in particular, there's been a lot of shifts for a shift from uh, Chinese workers to Vietnamese workers, for example, because the labor in Vietnam is actually cheaper than in China. Uh, and even though I think last time I heard Foxconn actually uh, delayed or didn't cancel, but delayed their plans to introduce a million robots in their production lines, uh, it's just a matter of time. So it whether they have or don't have that factory just yet, I, I think at any rate, it's it's just a matter of time. And and when I say time, I mean a year or two. Yeah, it, it's, un, it's unclear how long it will take, but I think it's inevitable that it's going to have a dramatic impact. Talk to me, though, about uh, what's the, you think, the, the, the break point that you think we are going to start noticing that trend of technological unemployment very seriously, because right now, lots of economists would actually deny this, wouldn't they? They would, and and in part, it's because they're looking at productivity figures, and we we are not showing dramatic increases in productivity right now. There, I think there could be a number of reasons for that. One is, I think that the economists look at it too simplistically, and they assume that um, if the robots essentially come online, then productivity has to soar. And they assume that, of course, because productivity is the value of what we produce divided by the number of hours it takes to produce it. So they're assuming once the robots show up, the, the, the number of hours is going to fall and productivity must take off. Um, I would point out that there's something else going on there, though, which is that the value of what we produce is entirely dependent on the number of customers we have out, out there to buy it. Uh, we don't just produce things in the market economy um, for no reason. We produce things in response to demand. That's especially true of the service sector where, you know, if, if you're a lawyer, you don't produce anything unless you have a client that that um, is going to buy those services. So if, in fact, uh, as we automate jobs or as technology de-skills de jobs or pushes down wages, it means that consumers have less to spend, and that impacts essentially the denumerator of the productivity number and will also decrease uh, the value of, of the products that we produce. And so it's it's unclear what the impact is on, on the economy. So there's clearly a feedback loop there, and I don't think that the economists give enough attention to that. They just figure, well, we're waiting for the productivity surge and we don't see it, but it could be a more complex story than that. Um, so that's part of what's going on, I think. It, but it's it's very complicated. There are many forces intertwined here. There's globalization. There is, you know, politics. There are a lot of people out there that have kind of an agenda. A lot of people who are on the left liberal tend to focus specifically on issues like we killed off the unions or we haven't raised the minimum wage. And I, I don't discount that at all. I think those are all very important things. But I think that they give too little attention to the broader trend of, of technology. So, you know, part it, it's very noisy in terms of being able to pick out technology in particular from from the other things, from the demographics, from the globalization and so forth. My guess is that as this proceeds and technology continues to accelerate, it will become more obvious, more more unambiguous, because I think that of all the forces that are in play here, technology is clearly the one that is subject to this ongoing acceleration. And therefore, I think we can expect that it will become just a bigger and bigger and more important force going forward. 
If I'm not mistaken, the Great Depression had about 25% unemployment. That's right, in the United States, yes. So, so do you expect, I mean, it, it would appear that, that the phenomenon of technological unemployment would dwarf uh, the Great Depression in terms of people unemployed from the population. It's it's possible, you know. I don't pretend to know exactly how this is going to play out. So far, what you have to say is that you know, as we look at these trends, we haven't seen massive unemployment, obviously yet. What we're seeing is more an impact on wages, the fact that they're stagnant. Uh, we're seeing a lot of underemployment, where people are working only part time and not full time, or when college graduates end up working at Starbucks because they can't find a skilled job. So. That's been the story so far. The question going forward, is it going to continue to be more of the same? Maybe that will just get more extreme or will we actually see that the massive unemployment develop? And um, I think that that's entirely possible. I don't pretend to know exactly when that would happen or how it's going to play out. But I think it's one of, you know, you can think of that as kind of the strong case of this if, if that develops. And if it does happen, it could happen quite suddenly if if we see some fairly disruptive technologies come on board and, and businesses begin to adopt those very rapidly, then you might see this unfold quite rapidly. But, you know, obviously predicting the future with any precision is is kind of a fool's game. And that's why I try not to do that. I, I think that um, it's important to recognize the general trend and realize that there are a number of possible outcomes there. Um, I, I agree with you, but but then in the context when you have a pesky podcast host who actually would like to to push you to speculate a little bit on the timeline, but but also because if we are to offer any solutions, which we're going to discuss a little bit later, the timeline is important, I think, right? So if you were to venture an educated guess, what do you think the pace and timeline would be that you expect? The, the, the educated guess that I normally give is that somewhere between 10 to 20 years from now, we're gonna see a dramatic impact. That's sort of my- And how do you, measure dramatic impact? As I said, is it like 25%? Does it look like less, more? What is dramatic impact? Oh, no, well, I don't know in terms of an unemployment rate. I mean, I, I don't know if I want to give a number there, but I think that it, you know, we would begin to see impacts in specific industries. For example, fast food. Um, if that automates, that would impact millions of jobs. If self-driving cars really become viable and start impacting uh, driving jobs, that will obviously have a dramatic impact. Um, if we see these technologies encroaching into retail, for example, which, I mean, these are the industries that really hire people right now. It's fast food, it's retail. These are the labor intensive industries. That's where the jobs are. So if we see a disruptive impact in those areas, I mean, it's going to be pretty evident. Um, and then the other area is the white collar jobs, you know, the, the people sitting in offices in front of a computer doing relatively routine things. I think that that's probably one of the highest risk areas. And we start to see those jobs kind of evaporate whole scale. And there's already some evidence that that's happening. You know, I just saw a report that uh, in the largest corporations, the, the corporate finance department, which would include jobs like financial planning, accounting, accounts payable and receivable, those jobs since 2004 have collapsed by about 40% in terms of the headcount in big corporations. And the reason is, that uh, there's now smart software doing those jobs. I mean, and, and that's in relative to revenue. So in terms of unit of revenue, those big companies now employ 40% fewer people than they did in 2004 um, to do those kinds of 
you know, relatively routine white collar finance oriented jobs. So, I mean, there is evidence already that, that this is going on. I can see that obviously accelerating. So, yeah, I give this number 10, 15, 20 years. Um, that's a guess, obviously. I will tell you that there are other people that are much more aggressive. One person I know of is Jeremy Howard, who's the CEO of a, our AI company. He talks about this a lot. I, I hear him talking about five years in terms of um, machine learning getting to the point where it can really have a dramatic impact on a lot of jobs. So, I mean, there are other smart people out there who think that this could be a lot more aggressive than what I'm suggesting here. So I, I think I'm actually being relatively conservative. Okay, so, so let's assume that it is very aggressive and perhaps we under, you underestimate it. What do you fear? What could be a worst case scenario here? Well, the worst, the worst case scenario is that you have massive unemployment. I mean, huge numbers of people unemployed, that our political system is just not equipped to deal with that because the traditional solutions, which are like give people unemployment insurance for six months or something, um, or you know try to send people back to school for more training, um, those solutions aren't going to work, um, nor will traditional economic responses like, for example, printing more money because you know, if the jobs are are disappearing because machines are literally able to take over those jobs, that also won't be effective. So we'd find ourselves in, a, in a, an entirely unprecedented situation with lots of people on the street, maybe massive social unheaval, um, perhaps things like riots and so forth, and a political system that just isn't really well equipped to deal with it. Um, and again, there would be a dramatic economic impact. It would not be the case that uh, the rich people are just doing great and everyone else is is, is um, in trouble because the whole economy would be dragged down by this. It would be another financial crisis because all these unemployed people or terrified people would not be spending money. Um, many of them might not be able to pay their mortgages or, or their student loans or, or their other debts. And therefore, that's, um, you know, the beginnings of a new financial crisis. And once once that happens, it impacts everyone, including even the rich people before you know it. The rich people aren't, you know, buying luxury goods anymore either. They're now thinking in terms of uh, buying gold and, 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 you know, fortifying themselves behind walls and so forth. So, you know, that's the worst case scenario. I have to say, as a former political science student, I, I'm always more concerned not about the economical implication, but about the political implication and social implications, because we know from history that usually when you have such extreme polarization of haves and have-nots, we have revolutions. And revolutions are very destructive and, and very uh, very bloodthirsty, as, as one of the French revolutionaries pointed out once. So... Uh, my concern is that they can actually end up in a situation like that. It can actually destroy the whole system in the in that sort of transitionary period, uh, which actually at the end perhaps is 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 a very good stage. But but from here to there, that point of transitioning is the critical point where we can end up destroying everything that we have created. That's right. I mean that that's a real fear. I guess. In terms of my main concern there, it's that this whole thing could undermine the confidence that people have in capitalism as a system. Now, what we've seen in the past is that really there are only two choices out there. I mean, there are some things in between, but we've got capitalism and we've got what you might call a planned economy or, or a form of communism where, where 
um, the government actually owns the economy and attempts to direct the economy. Um, if capitalism fails in the, in the minds of most people, then people may turn to that other alternative and that other alternative is being shown to be, you know, a massive failure in the past. So that would be a very bad thing. I think that what we want to do is adapt the system that has worked for us, which is capitalism, so that it can, can continue to work in the future. And in particular, so that it can be more inclusive and, and provide prosperity to everyone. If we don't do that, we there are a lot of risks in terms of the whole system, um, our whole political ideology, and you know, just negative things across the board. I mean, in general, when you get into this kind of social situation, it's also the kind of um, environment that is very conducive to to demagogues, to to people like Adolf Hitler, to to crazy people basically who can say crazy things, and because people are very desperate, they will listen to it. Um, so that that's definitely a real risk. Yeah. So so you consider yourself a capitalist then? Absolutely. I believe in capitalism, I, but I, I fully recognize that it's got some real issues. And I think that um, the problems will become bigger because of this. So it, this is something we need to address. But, I, you know, the past has shown clearly that if you did the alternative, which is what we would call communism or real socialism, where the government owns the means of production and, and attempts to plan all this rather than relying on market mechanisms, um, in order to run the economy, that that's been just a massive failure everywhere it's been tried. So I don't think we want to go in that direction. I will come back to that issue a little bit later, but but before that, let's. I, I wanted to also set up the context where our audience understands your your sort of background starting point, uh, especially when you actually uh, start giving your recommendations as to what is to be done to address this issue, so that they understand better. Uh, and don't misunderstand you. So um, let us talk about your solution. What's so we have this very substantial issue. We have the trend. Hopefully, we're not quite there, but we are concerned about it. So what is to be done? I believe that ultimately, in the long run, the best solution to this, and maybe the only real solution, is going to be some form of guaranteed income or basic income, so that everyone has access to at least a minimal income, whether they're able to find a job or not. Um, and a lot of people will look at that and will say, that's socialism, that's a massive expansion of the welfare state, it's a lefty thing. In fact, if you look at history, it, it really isn't. It's a solution that's been supported by people across the political spectrum, but notably, a lot of conservatives and libertarians have supported this idea, most notably, perhaps, Friedrich Hayek, who is you know, kind of an icon among conservatives. I think even Milton Friedman supported it. That's right. Milton Friedman supported the negative income tax, which is, you know, closely related, a very similar idea. Um, so uh, Charles Murray is another guy who's really conservative, not not un totally not loved on the left in, in, in the United States, that's for sure, um, who, who is strongly supported a guaranteed income. So uh, it's an idea that has had lots of support on on especially the libertarian right. And, and the reason they support it is that it is a market oriented solution to this. You know, what you do is you give people an income and then they go out and participate in the market, um, as opposed to having government take over more and more and get more involved in details of everyone's life and worry about housing people and feeding people 
or for example, tr taking over industries and, and running them in such a way that traditional jobs are created. I mean, that's the lefty, liberal, socialist path. And it's a path that I think is much more dystopian than simply giving people an income so that they can survive in the market economy. That's probably what we want to do. And this is the simplest and easiest way to adapt capitalism so that it can work in the future and so that it can offer um, a reasonable level of prosperity to everyone. So it, it would seem that 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 guaranteed minimum income that you're suggesting as a solution has a historical backing both on the right and the left uh, for, for different reasons, but, but it would appear to me that both the left and the right would be supporting it. Why hasn't it been realized? And I mean, the original calls for that were shortly after World War II, if I remember, like late 40s, early 50s, perhaps. Right. I mean, the issue has come up a number of times. You know, the Nixon administration back in the 1970s actually had a real proposal for guaranteed income in the United States. And, and the motive there is to um, essentially to replace the other, you know, less effective mechanisms of the welfare state that we have. In other words, get rid of things like welfare and unemployment insurance and and so forth and replace them with with something that is um is is you know more market oriented. So that that's what has driven the proposal in the past. It's never gained enough traction, enough support. Um, you know, there there are also of course always been questions about whether we can afford it because of course it is expensive to give everyone that money. But uh, I do think that going forward it's going to become kind of inevitable in terms of, you know, it's, it's going to sort of loom as the only workable solution if you want to continue to have a market economy at, at some point. So why, why do you think hasn't it ever materialized? I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's to some extent, it is very much at odds with our, our philosophy, especially in the United States. We are big on this, what we call the Protestant work ethic, the fact that if you work hard, um, you should be rewarded for that. If you don't work, you should not be rewarded. Um, uh, but if icons like Hayek and Friedman and so on on the right, and then a number of people on the left for different reasons would support it, why not? I don't see. Why wouldn't it be pass? But those people simply didn't have that much influence. And, and the problem is that, you know, even today, conservatives in the United States will talk a lot about Friedrich Hayek, but they will cherry pick his ideas and they will pick the things that fit into their ideology, which is right now very, very conservative, very, you know, fringe. Um, yeah, I have to agree with that. They will completely disregard the things that he said that don't tie into that. And I mean, Hayek also supported uh, national health care. And you know, he thought that there was a role for government in providing pensions and in providing health care, but I mean, uh, you know, conservatives in the United States don't want to hear that. Yeah, that that's why actually he's one of my, uh, from on the right end, he is my favorite economist. Right, he was a very reasonable guy relative to most conservatives today. I think that if he appeared today and said the things that he said, a lot of people on the right in the United States would call him a socialist. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And actually, he, he is well known for having these debates with uh, John Maynard Keynes, who is my favorite economist on the other spectrum. And they were kind of, uh, Keynes helped Hayek uh, find a position in England, um, a teaching position, I think. So, uh, yeah, even though they, they had huge differences academically and, and uh, they still were, were 
I don't know if they were close friends, but they were they were on very friendly terms. That's right. And I think if you really look at their policies, the differences between them are nothing like the differences today between the right and the left. It's just become more and more polarized and more distant. And that's that's a real problem in terms of being able to address address this. That's one of the things I worry about most is that our system has now become just so dysfunctional, so polarized. Um, we just don't have the ability to really take on important, complex issues and have a meaningful discussion about them and solve this problem. So all evidence suggests that we're headed toward a crisis and it's only once we hit a crisis that maybe we'll figure out a way to deal with this. So, so let me ask you, let's assume that we accept your guaranteed minimum income proposal. How much should that be? I believe that it, it should start out fairly minimal. And I think in terms of something like $1,000 a month, which is clearly not enough for people to live on. But you've got to start at a relatively low level, I think, and then phase it in gradually and carefully. Why? Oh, well, the people who, who um, oppose this idea will immediately point out that it will, on some level, create a disincentive to work. And, and right now we do have an economy that, you know, requires human labor. So we can't afford to turn everyone to, into a slacker. So we need to do this gradually. We need to do it in a way that preserves the incentive to work. But we have a lot of research actually that shows that that supposed incentive to work doesn't hold under tests. There's a number of empirical tests validating that. Um, and, and a number of cases like, for example, uh, I have a friend who lives in Orsa, Norway, uh, they have 1.5% unemployment in his community and, and they uh, they have uh, very generous support for people who may not be able to find work, especially for medical reasons, for example, uh, right? Uh, so, and it doesn't seem to impact negatively on, on the unemployment rate. So in other words, it doesn't seem there's many people sitting at home doing nothing. Uh, and I can't remember the economist, but there's an amazing YouTube video uh, based on a number of, uh, and I'll, I'll reference that later on, on, on a number of uh, economic research that actually puts huge doubt behind that supposed incentive. And I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just saying that that's the conventional wisdom out there. I think that, that if you pull people in the United States and talk to economists, there you will find an overriding concern that it would create a disincentive to work. Um, so I think that it has to be addressed, you know, politically and the way to do it would be to phase it in gradually. And and also from an economic standpoint, we, we could not initially afford, a you know, a dramatically generous guaranteed income. This is something that we'd have to start, I think, gradually in terms of also paying for it. Um, there are there have been studies, as you say, uh, there's one in India as well that showed that there wasn't really any disincentive to work. But it, most of those studies, again, the, the income has been pretty minimal. I don't think there are too many where it's been very generous. So um, probably in terms of Switzerland, I think, is proposing to have that guaranteed minimum income. I think at about I mean, depending on the exchange rate between two and a half to three thousand dollars a month. Yeah, it would. That, that that's a basically people uh, signed a um, petition to get it on the ballot. But I, as far as I know, it, there's there's no definite plans to actually get it on the ballot. Nor granted is it clear to pass. So so yeah, granted. But it's a lot more. It's probably two and a half, three times more generous and more realistic because I I don't think a thousand dollars is really survivable in the U.S. I mean, 
Not in most cities, probably. It's not, um, but it's better than what we have now. Yeah, but but I mean, if you can't survive, it's not going to be better, right? Because let's say you need the next amount to survive a month. And if you have half of X or zero of X, you still can't survive. Yes, but, but we're not now at the point where all the jobs are disappearing, right? I mean, there still are a, a lot of jobs out there. and The vast majority of people are working. So the idea behind this is to give people an income floor at a minimum level and then design the incentives so that they will continue to do other things on top of that. In other words, they will still work if they can. They will still at least work part time. They will maybe start a business. You, you know, you have to be very careful in designing this. that You don't destroy the incentives for people to continue to do productive things to the extent that they can. We're not yet at this far future point where the machines have taken all the jobs and people absolutely have to have this income to survive. So I, I don't think we should jump the gun and, and say, let's have that right now. I mean, I think that this is politically and realistically going to have to be a gradual. I have to agree with you to the point that we don't have to jump the gun right now. But but where I do, do disagree with you is that I think when it has to be done, it has to be done a lot more generously. And I believe it can be done generously if we figure out a smart way of doing it. Uh, and I also believe that that connection between incentive and, and income uh, has been proven over and over again to not hold scientifically. Uh, it's a myth, in other words. Uh, so that's that's where my, my, my issue comes. Um, but let's focus a little bit more on the ways we can potentially pay for it, because that would make a big difference. If we can afford more than $1,000 or if we can't, that will make a big difference. So how, what are the best ways, even if it's just say $1,000, you have what, 300 million citizens in the United States plus, how do we pay for them? Well, that's, I mean, it's a daunting challenge. I think that, that again, I'm looking at this politically, what is feasible, what, what could be agreed to. I think that it will be probably a combination of new kinds of taxation. Um, and people would go up in arms the moment you say that word. Yeah, sure they would in the United States. That's the political challenge. I mean, but inevitably, part of it has to be more progressive taxation on the people at the very top who are doing the best and, in fact, are really the ones who are, you know, benefiting from this. These are the people that, in effect, you could say own the machines and are hoovering up all the the uh, fruits of innovation throughout the economy. We, You know, it's inevitable that you're going to have to tax those people at a higher rate and and partially use that to uh, redistribute this income. And, and your your argument that you were giving just a little bit before comes here in a different shape, which I also don't believe their claim in, when they say, well, the moment you start taxing those people, you're creating the, the wrong incentives for job creation, for hiring new people, for creating new businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't believe that, and I don't think... You, you know, that's just a, a right wing um, talking point, essentially. I, you know, even Warren Buffett has said that, that uh, you know, the tax rate on him does not Im impact his decisions in terms of investment. Warren Buffett calls it actually class warfare. Right. Yeah, it is. It is that. And there's plenty of evidence. I mean, you look back in the 1970s, uh, in the mid 1970s, Microsoft and Apple were both started. Yeah. And and tax rate back then was, I think, around 70 percent. So neither Bill Gates nor Steve Jobs said, oh, my gosh, you know, taxes are so high. I'm going to just smoke dope. I'm not going to, you know, start a, a, a business. So 
it didn't create a disincentive. I mean, entrepreneurs don't don't even think about that very much, I don't think. So that's just, you know, it's just not really an issue. I think that there's definitely, there's been economic research done, I think formal economic research that has suggested that the optimal tax rate at those highest levels is probably around 65% or in that range. And that's the point at which that's about how high you can go before you really need to start worrying about a disincentive. And going back to the previous point I was making before, what you're saying about entrepreneurs, I believe is true not only for them, but also for the rest of the population, especially when it comes to doing meaningful work, right? Entrepreneurs are moved by things that they believe are important. So they don't look about the uh, they don't look at the small f uh, font. They don't look at the tax rates, etc. They want to, you know, make a dent in the universe. So I believe if if everyone, if, if if normal people want to do meaningful work that gives them satisfaction, then those uh, incentives always work towards working rather than not working. In other words, people would choose not to stay on their couch and smoke dope, but rather to make a difference. I believe. I think you know most people will, yeah, and, and there are plenty of examples of that. You can look at Wikipedia, right? People spend countless hours editing Wikipedia; they don't get paid for that. Open source software is another example. Um, one thing I point out, though, is that in order to do those things, you need a certain level of education. Um, you know, if you if you drop out of high school, then you're probably not going to be editing Wikipedia. So. I, I do think it's important to have incentives in place so that people will continue to pursue as much education as, as they can so that everyone, you know, we continue to have an educated society, even as we create a better economic safety net. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, going forward, you know, we don't have to worry too much about the idea that meaningful work has to be coupled to an income. I mean, I, I don't think those two things necessarily have to go together just because they have gone together you know historically or at least in recent history yeah and my whole career in the last five years is trying to prove that connection eventually if not yet between doing meaningful work and making a good income <laughs> but i'm still working on it um let me ask you about the systemic question here because you said before that you're a capitalist uh, and, and and that you believe capitalism is the only available options. Well, there's other people on, uh, from a variety of points of views, from, let's say, Peter Thiel to um, the Venus Project people, to the Zeitgeist Movement people, to Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, there's people from all quarters, not, not only the extreme left, like, let's say, socialists, but other people who have pointed out that capitalism has failed and is failing when you look at it uh, from the point of view of negative externalities or environmental degradation, uh, just as one example, for example. So they're saying that your solution is trying to put up is a band-aid solution. They're saying that uh, instead of trying to fix capitalism, you need a systemic change where you create totally different incentives rather than the ones that you have right now. Because the, what you have right now is the incentive to replace labor with capital because it's more profitable. And for as long as you have that incentive, you're going to have that trend. And so you need to create a different system in which you either utilize that trend in a new way 
or you create counter incentives that counterbalance that trend. And they're offering the Venus Project, the Zeitgeist Movement, uh, there's the gift economy, uh, Jeffrey's, uh, not Jeffrey Sachs, but um, one of my previous interviewees, and I, I'm, I apologize, I'm forgetting his name right now, but it's going to come to me in a minute. He was talking about hybrid economy uh, and, and so on. So what about that, that we need a totally new system? Okay. I mean, you mentioned Jeffrey Sachs a couple of times. I don't think he wants to get rid of Jeremy Rifkin. I meant, I meant Jeremy Rifkin. Okay. Okay. Rifkin maybe. Yeah. Uh, um, this idea that technology is, you know, substituting for labor is true. It's what has happened always. I believe it's now accelerating. I also believe that we do not want to stop that because that is progress. And that is part of what is going to make us much better off in the future. If we, you look at the, a lower middle class person today, they're much better off than a wealthy person 100 years ago in terms of all the things that they have available to them and the lifestyle they have. That's because of technology. The last thing we want to do is stop that. And what we've found historically is the market economy sort of intertwines with, integrates with technological advance to, to create a system that has really moved us forward. I don't think we want to stop that. Um, the last thing we'd want to do is destroy the incentive to for, for technological innovation, and, and, and part of that is creating systems that replace workers. So I don't want to stop that at all. What I want to do is adapt it so that it works in the future. Peter Thiel, for example, says that there is an inherent contradiction between capitalism and competition. So the moment you talk about capital, the focus of capital is the accumulation of more capital. It's the exact, so every entrepreneur is a capitalist who hates competition. And if you look uh, in the real world around us, you observe one of two things. Either you have places of very good competition, for example, let's say the retail industry, uh, I don't know, in clothing or something like that, where the situation has relatively decent comp competition, but it's not very good for capital and for entrepreneurs. In other words, it's not very profitable. Or you have situations which are very close to oligo oligopolies or monopolies, for example, such as Google, Apple, etc., uh, where you hardly have any competition, but those are very good for capital. So th there is that inherent contradiction in capitalism, which Peter Thiel says that eventually will break the system apart. Um. I think that's a valid point. I think that the solution to that has been, you know, government regulation to break up um, the oligopolies, the you know, to have antitrust laws. I don't know that Peter Thiel would agree with that. He seems to, I, I don't understand how he can think that and then think that a libertarian solution is going to solve the problem. And, you know, let's get rid of government entirely. It, it seems to me that it would make the situation worse. I mean, it's inevitable, yes, that entrepreneurs, of course, want to be monopolies if they can, if they can get away with it, they will. That's, there's no mystery there. I mean, that's the way it works. Um, it's the role of government to have regulation and laws in place to keep the market efficient. And, and obviously part of the problem we have is that, you know, government is, is being captured by some of the industries that, that should be regulated. So, um, but, you know, in general, I think that, that, we have to do our best to fix this system because it's the only one that, that works. Um, now we can think in the far future that maybe there's, we're going to have the Star Trek economy or something, or we're going to have, 
advanced nanotechnology, molecular manufacturing, and that's going to completely upend everything. Um, and perhaps that's true, and, and maybe that will happen, but we're nowhere close to that now. So the ideas that I'm presenting are really intended to be something that's going to work you know, over the coming decades um, as we enter this, this new age, I, you know, even further in the future when technology becomes completely radical, um, you know, perhaps it is true that we'll, we'll gravitate to an entirely new system. But I have to say that it's really unclear how we get there. Um, the problem with completely upending what we have now is that that's going to be extraordinarily disruptive. I mean, yeah, I have to agree uh, with you on that. You, you know, uh, I mean, we talked about you know, people kind of, they're kind of nonchalant about that. They say, let's get rid of this system we have now because it sucks and let's replace it with something entirely new. I mean, you you need to take a moment to think about what you're saying there. Okay, what it would mean for society and the risks that that would introduce. I mean, if we destroy everything we have now, there is no guarantee that what arises from the ashes of that is going to be much better. It might not be better. It might be much worse. I mean, you're, you're taking a, a huge roll of the dice there in terms of yeah, I have to agree with you on that for sure. That's why, I mean, as someone who 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 grew up in the Eastern Bloc behind the Iron Curtain, you know, I have to admit clearly that capitalism has won. But to me, that's that's not a permanent victory. That's only a context-related, temporary victory spanning a part of the 20th century and perhaps not much in the 21st century and like all other systems there's got to be something coming behind it that's what you know the evolution of our social system consists of right we went through you know hunter gathering feudalism capitalism and there's going to be something else better afterwards i believe that that could be and it may be that you know capitalism will evolve to the point where it's it's almost unrecognizable where where the capitalism of the future is so different from what we've seen in the past that it may in effect be something different but i think that there are certain tenets of it i agree that we probably are going to have to preserve and and most importantly is is the market economy and the market incentives and the fact that as as hayek would have said the market is really the mechanism that solves problems and and um and, and it's essentially an information system. The market is really an information system that is able to solve all these countless problems throughout the economy and, and get things allocated properly. I think we need to keep that even as we address the areas where capitalism is you know, more dysfunctional. I would say yes and no. In some situations, the market is the best by far. Not, not, nothing gets even close to it, but there are many situations in which it doesn't and and so the, the the real key is how do we know which are which and how do we know when we can and should st step in whether it's government regulation or something else and when we shouldn't uh so I, i'm not willing to 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 admit that it's always the market mechanism is always the good one because i mean if we talk well about no i i wouldn't say that either i think healthcare is one area i talk about where clearly it's not like a consumer market um it's not and and then I'm pretty supportive of something like uh, a single payer system or or something. And I talk about that a bit in the book because it's clearly an area where the market just doesn't work in the same way that it works with you know smartphones or or automobiles or something. Yeah. So yes, we have to recognize those areas, and and that's part of. That's why I think uh, Jeremy Rifkin's idea about hybrid economies, like with certain elements from capitalism and certain elements from open sourcing, uh, sort of distributed networks and, and stuff may have, you know, 
very good future. But uh, time is advancing here, so let me just ask you, where on the priority order of the issues confronted by our civilization today do you place technological unemployment? I mean, because people would say, look, Martin, we have much bigger issues. Uh, if you're the president of the United States, you would say, well, I have to deal with uh, terrorism. This guy in Russia called Putin, you know, we might, the, the risks of nuclear war are substantially higher than they were a couple of years ago, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine. We have issues like global warming. So how important is this technological unemployment that you're talking about? I, I think that it's going to become increasingly important. And it, obviously, it doesn't have the immediacy of, of terrorism or something. I mean, I, I can't pretend that, that the president should take his eyeball off the terrorism threat and work on technological unemployment. It's not like that. But I think that this is a longer term issue. In some ways, I, I see parallels between this and climate change as being an issue that really looms large in the future and um, maybe, you know, just a longer term thing that we're going to have to address. And, and I think that like climate change, it will make all these other things worse. I mean, if if economies are performing poorly, if people are worried about their economic security, then that increases the probability of terrorism and, and dysfunctional governments and, and all kinds of social upheaval. It also makes it harder it also makes it much harder to to address the issue of things like climate change, these other challenges that face. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is the possibility of a kind of a perfect storm where climate change and, and this technological impact impact, you know, roughly in parallel, sort of kind of at the same time as, as we move forward into the future so that it just makes everything you know, kind of worse. People worry more and more about their individual economic insecurity. And because of that, they're totally unable to focus on something like climate change, which is, you know, a broader issue that looms more in the future. Um, you know, it just becomes much, much harder to address, to do it, really address all of this. So I think that this is an issue that's going to become more important and it's going to intertwine with all of these other issues, you know, so it's going to just make our whole world more complex and, and, potentially more dangerous. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Let me throw in a couple of questions from uh, uh, an audience member. His name is Adam Iskela. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. And he says this, as a teacher, what answer can I give students when they ask, why do we need to learn this if chances are, are that they don't? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that that's one of the questions that I've struggled with, and it's one of the reasons that I think it's really important to have an, a real incentive for education, because currently the primary incentive, I think, for most people to pursue education is that they're going to have a better career, a more meaningful job, a better income. And for the moment, that's still true. I still think that that works. Um, but we may reach the point in the future where, you know, a lot of people do all the right things and simply uh, don't find, you know, that better career as a result of education. And I think that we need to therefore design incentives into our policies to continue that. And that's one. I really disagree with you on that. I don't care about incentives. I've been to school for like eight years after high school and I was a terrible high school student, but I've developed love for learning. And this, I've always had this curiosity. And in high school, I had 
some kind of issues. You know, my mom died when, from cancer when I was 13. I had to leave home at 13 and a half because my dad started drinking. So I had, I barely finished high school, but then I was excelling in the university level. And I don't think it had to do with incentives. I think it has to do with, with good conditions for me to thrive and with the fact that I love learning. So my take is that if you create that love of learning early on uh, and that curiosity, that's all the incentive you ever need. I hate that you, and I think that there are a lot of people out there who are like you. I like to think that I'm, I would be the same. Uh, if you look at our entire population, it's pretty clear that there are a lot of people that don't develop that love for learning for a number of reasons. You can try to address that, but addressing it is going to be extraordinarily difficult. It's not just about schools. It's about families. Um, it's about parents. I mean, how are you going to fix that systemically? Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot to suggest that we should give people a nudge. I mean, you hear that 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 idea of, of um, giving people a little push in the right direction. Um, and I think that's where the incentives come in. And And for you, that may not be important because you have this innate drive to, to, you know, to seek. Uh, For example, all the incentives are that I should stop podcasting, to be honest. That's right. So you obviously. But I haven't stopped in five years. So you are driven internally and that's great. But there are people hanging out on street corners that, that do not have that inner drive. And so I think it's reasonable to have a policy that helps to to push those people in the right direction, too. And uh, and, and the hope is that if you give people that little push, Maybe then they, even if they start out for purely monetary reasons to pursue more education, as they pursue it, they will become more like you and they will figure out, hey, this is something that is really rewarding. But so you give people a push in the right direction and you hope that that um, sort of gathers traction going forward. And, and you know, but I, I think that probably we do need policies that give people that initial push. I would agree with you. I, I probably my opinion is a little bit perhaps more sophisticated and I kind of made it out to be a little bit too simplistic. But time is advancing here, Martin. So I have only two or three quick questions left. So first, let me ask you, after this overall, can you tell us if you're an optimist or a pessimist? Because we are facing some serious challenges with technological unemployment, very serious. So on balance, where do you see us going and are you optimistic we can do it or not? I'm, I am generally a long-term optimist and a short-term pessimist in the sense that, you know, in the long run, I think this could be one of the best things that has ever happened to humanity. I mean, it could mean a future where no one has to do a job they hate, um, you know, where machines, technology take on all the really lousy jobs that people now have to do because of an income. So that's obviously a very bright future for everyone. It could make everyone better off. In the short term, however, getting through this transition, figuring out how to adapt to this in a way that um, creates broad-based prosperity is going to be just, I think, a staggering political challenge. And my hope is that this happens very gradually and that as a result, maybe we have time to make the adaptation. But if it turns out to happen suddenly, then I think that it could be really quite negative. So... The, the challenge is daunting. If we can overcome the challenge, then I think it will be a terrific thing. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I'm very optimistic long term, but my concern is with that transitional period of probably a decade or so that can make or break the whole end result. So 
Uh, Martin, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. It's mfordfuture is, is my Twitter handle. And that, that's got links also to, I've got a, a blog and a page with links to some of the other things I've written and so forth. That's probably the easiest thing to mm-hmm. look up with. Fantastic. So the last question I always ask of my guests at the end of the show is, especially today, we've been discussing this issue of technological unemployment for about an hour, maybe more. So what's the message? What's the most important thing that perhaps you would like to impart on our audience at the end of our conversation? Just that this is an issue that everyone needs to become aware of. And I think we need to have a conversation about this. This is an issue that um, we really need to get it out into the open into we, we need to start to see having politicians even talking about this. We need to have a public conversation about this and struggle with the idea of whether or not this is really happening, because obviously some people are skeptical. And then if we find it, that, you know, there's evidence to support it, we really need to start figuring out a, a solution. And we need to understand that this could unfold at a very rapid rate. It's something that because we're talking about this acceleration, um, as we're heading toward, you know, the singularity, maybe if, if some people believe that this could just unfold dramatically at, at a really high rate. It may happen way before we're ready to deal with it. So it's really important to start talking about this. I absolutely agree with you that we have to have a conversation about technological unemployment. And I hope that that is what we did today with you. So Martin Ford, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah.